All right, guys, we'll uh, get started. It's, it's uh, great to see you on Wednesday evening. This is super, 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 super fun for me. I, uh, I'm really glad that we're able to be together uh, in the middle of the week. Thanks for making the time to come out. Uh, I, I'm handing a few things out. My, I always set my expectations low, so I don't think I made enough cop uh, copies. Um, but there is a set of notes, really simple notes. So it's, I know some people like notes and references. So there's a, a set of notes and then there's something that says Bible knowledge quiz. And if we were doing this like a class, I would probably have you take that, but uh, you can do that at home. I think, uh, that's a fun quiz to, uh, test what you know of the scriptures. And then, uh, you can bring it back. And if you don't Google and you get a hundred percent, I'll try to have a, a prize, but only one. So, but uh, see if you can do it during the next couple of weeks without the help of Google or chatbot or anything, uh, anything like that. And uh, hopefully that will motivate some of us for the purpose of this class. And then uh, I also had, uh, this is for free. This is kind of extra, but a few years ago uh, I went through all of Genesis and I just tried to go through Genesis um, asking as many different questions as I could that would help you get the meaning of each chapter. And so uh, if you want help with your devotions this year, that might be um, helpful helpful for you. You can sort of write your own commentary on Genesis if you use that and answer those questions. But let's, uh, let's get started with a word of prayer and... See where see where God takes us. Michael Chan, will you open us up with a word of prayer? Mike Chan. Uh, sure. Yeah, thanks. Father, we thank you so much for uh, for just continuing to teach us and grow us through our church here together. Thank you for this evening we can gather just to be able to learn more about your word and to love your word more and love you more. Lord, pray that you just not bless us deeply. Help us to uh, continue to just grow in our understanding of your truth so that we can apply it to our lives and to be, be sanctified and conform to the image of Christ. Help us to glorify you and to love you and to trust you and to follow you and all that we do. We trust you. Amen. Thanks. All right. Well, welcome to uh, Cornerstone Bible Institute. Um, <laughs> That's just a fun name. We're calling it that. Uh, I like school myself. I know other people don't. So if you like school, call it Institute. If you don't like school, call it a Bible study. Uh, I think it might be a good idea as we go along, we'll see, to have some tables because I'll give you notes and we uh, can make it feel a little more classroomish. But that takes a lot of work, too. So I don't know. We might just be sitting in the, sitting in these chairs. Um, but we're going to be doing... Uh, a survey of the Old and New Testaments, but um, it's going to be a little more intense than most surveys, I think. We're going to go a little deeper because uh, usually in a survey, it's just sort of like uh, facts, like who are the main characters in Genesis and things like that. But uh, I, we're going to try to get more of the theology, uh, an understanding of how the Old Testament works, how the New Testament works, how the Bible works. And uh, part of the motivation behind this, I think I told you that when we moved to Africa, one of the things that surprised me was how many people claim to be Christians. So uh, there's been a lot of mission work in Africa for many years. And uh, so we would meet 
many, many people felt sort of like the Bible Belt or something. We would meet many, many people who would say they were Christians. And yet when we started to talk about the gospel or we would go to try to counsel people, we often found that the, the person that we were talking to may have gone to church or they might have had some contact uh, with the Bible, but they uh, really didn't understand uh, the gospel and they didn't really understand, often didn't really understand how the Bible worked, what it was about. And so it would make conversations a little a little difficult. And so we thought, why don't we uh, start a training center, not so much for uh, people who want to be pastors, but actually for people who think they're Christians and who are uh, interested in the Bible, but haven't really had an opportunity to study it very carefully. And so that was really on my heart, partially because I, uh, I just feel like, man, the Lord blessed me with so many opportunities to sit in good classes and learn from great teachers about the Bible. And so why don't I try to take some of what they taught me and then share it there? And that was about maybe eight years ago uh, when we started that. And we used to meet uh, once a month on weekends and it would uh, there was homework and quizzes and exams and all those things. But uh, since we've been here, I've kind of wanted to do something like that. Um, but I thought, you know, let's chill it out a little since we're in Southern California and um we won't meet quite as long, and uh, I won't give homework uh, or take give exams, but let's just take Wednesday evenings and start uh, working our way through the Bible and um, see how far we can get. And so it's going to be slow, and uh, today we're going to start with just an introduction. And uh, specifically, we're going to think about the question, uh, why study the Bible? Why study the Bible? Uh, the Bible is a big book. It definitely takes a lot of work the study, and um, we're going to think about why. And I I, uh, I like thinking about this before I do my own devotions, or I have devotions with my family. Obviously, I have a pretty big family, and so uh, one of the things we've done over the years on a pretty regular basis is we would have family devotions or have family devotions, and uh, we don't make it very complicated. Usually, we, at the end of the day, we get out our Bibles, and um, often around dinner, and open them up to a passage and we start reading. And uh, God's used that time in our family's life in, a, in a, some really profound ways. But if you've ever tried to read the Bible with children, uh, especially with small children, but with children, or really with anyone at the end of a day, even sometimes if you're just going to read the Bible by yourself, um, you know, as you open your Bible, that can sometimes feel a little bit hard, actually. Uh, you don't always come at the end of the day and, and think, this is all I ever wanted to do. You know, sometimes you're thinking, wow, I am and tired. <laughs> I kind of would like to just sit here. And so one thing I always like to do before I have my devotions is, um, and sometimes before we have devotions as a family, is just uh, think for a moment about why we're reading the Bible. Like, what are we, what are we doing? Why is this important? We know it's important. As Christians, we're people we say, who say we love the Bible. Um, but why do we love the Bible? I remember reading a story about a young lady named Mary Jones, and she was from uh, Wales. She was about eight years old when she became a Christian. And uh, she learned to read, and she wanted to own a Bible in her native Welsh language. But it was the 1800s, and Bibles were expensive and hard to come by in Wales. And so she had a relative who owned a Bible, but they lived a number of miles away from her. And um, that was her only opportunity to read the Bible. So she saved for six years until she had enough money to buy one of her own Bibles. And when she went to buy it, 
she was told that the only um, place she could buy a Bible was 25 miles away. And so um, she actually walked the entire way barefoot to find the person who was able to sell her that Bible and fulfill her dream of owning a Bible. So this was a a 14-year-old girl who saved for six years to own a Bible and walked in the end 50 miles barefoot. Um, she, she, she loved the Bible, which makes sense to us as Christians sitting here in, in church, but probably would seem very strange to people who aren't Christians. Um, that story, imagine telling that at a public high school, you know, uh, let me tell you about Mary Jones. She was 14 years old and walked 50 miles barefoot to own a Bible. Um, most people wouldn't understand why would she love the Bible that much? And even people who come to our church sometimes, I'm sure, uh, I, they might think, why do these people spend so much time talking about the Bible? Uh, if people saw you here this evening coming out on a Wednesday, Wednesday night to study the Bible, why so much focus on, on the Bible? One way to answer that question, of course, is to think about what the Bible is. I know uh, people have a lot of different answers to that question. You go out there and some people uh, think the Bible is a really great human book. They, even unbelievers. There's a, um, a famous psychologist from, uh, from Canada who I see now has courses on the Bible and uh, lectures. And he is uh, it's not, it's hard, he's not a believer, but he thinks the Bible is just this amazing book, the foundation to our society. Abraham Lincoln has an incredible quote about the Bible, and it's hard to make the case that Abraham Lincoln was was a Christian. You can um, find non-Christians who respect the Bible, but more and more, of course, you find uh, non-Christians who think basically the opposite. They think of it as uh, not a great human book, but a bad human book, one that is full of uh, like fairy tales and myths and all those kinds of things. But we're here because we believe the Bible is the word of God. We believe the Bible is a God speaking. But I think that sometimes we've, we, we don't appreciate how significant that is. Um, we say that, like, this is God's word, uh, but it, it doesn't hit us because it kind of seems ordinary when you uh, open up Leviticus and you read about these rituals or you read a genealogy in Chronicles. And sometimes we want something bigger and we want something better. And a part of that maybe is because we should long to be in God's presence fully. That's like, a, that's a good, a good desire. We're not there yet. So there's going to be some longing. But I think part of why sometimes we want something bigger and better than the Bible is because we don't appreciate what we have. Um, and that's, that's a, a pretty human problem just in general, not to appreciate what you have. We often have a hard time appreciating the privileges we have. Um, so you talk to Prince Harry and, uh, he feels pretty sorry for himself right now. I think, I don't know his story, but I'm imagining royalty is not that bad. And it feels a little bit like he's complaining. And if he is, it's not surprising because that's how most of us work in general. It's very hard for us to appreciate the privileges we have. And that's how we work with God. I was thinking of, uh, the book of numbers recently. And if you ever read numbers, you know, the book of Numbers opens kind of, it seems like, in a, a little bit of a more boring way because it's describing Israel setting up their camp. And yet, uh, at the same time, it's really significant because 
It's describing the way Israel was supposed to set up their camp in the wilderness. And the big thing about the way they set up their camp was that God's home was supposed to be right in the middle. So what you have in the beginning of Numbers is a description of God living with his people, God dwelling with his people. And later on in the book of Numbers, there's this pagan prophet who's standing up on a mountain. And he's actually looking down at this setup with God living there in the middle of the people. And he actually says, I wish I could have what they had. And yet, you know what? Israel totally takes it for granted. And uh, we're like, how could they take God living in their midst for granted? Well, we have the word of God. And we can take it for granted. And I want to show you that it's not really that different (laughs) by looking at some of the things the Bible says about God and his word. Starting with the fact that in the Bible, when God speaks, things happen. So I just want to make a few observations about this book and God and his word. And one of the basic, most basic observations I want to make is When you look at the Bible, you find that when God speaks, things happen. I've been reading a a great book called uh, Words of Life by a guy named Timothy Ward. I would just encourage you to, to get it. A lot of what I'm saying is jumping off of some of what he says. But listen to this quote. God's words and actions are intimately related in the Bible. To say of God that he spoke and to say of God that he did something are often one and the same thing. So uh, we think sometimes of words as opposed to actions. And we'll be like, that guy is all talk and no action. And if I ask you to do something for me and you talk, I might be like, oh, that guy didn't do anything. But in the Bible, when God wants to do something, we find very often he talks. As God talks, as God speaks, He is doing something. And we see that from the beginning of the Old Testament. Genesis 1, chapter uh, chapter 1, verses 3, 6, and 7. God creates, and he creates in a, a very specific way. There's lots of ways that God could have created the world. But you know how Genesis 1 tells us that God created the world? Genesis 1, uh, verse 3. What, What does it say? It says, and God said... Let there be light, and there's light. So how did God make light? He spoke. He spoke. That's how he made light. His speaking was making light. In verse 6, you can see it says, And God said, Let there be an expanse in the middle of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And then verse 7, And God made the expanse. And, And that's really just a parallel verse. God saying and God making are the same thing. And the rest of the chapter is the same way. And, you know, God could have done it differently. But he didn't because he wants us to understand something about how he works in this world. There is a connection being made between God's word and action and action. After the creation, uh, of course, Genesis 3, there's the fall. And we read about God's judgment. And how did God judge? He spoke which we take for granted, but as someone has explained, it would have been quite possible for God to have introduced childbearing into the woman's life and to have made the snake crawl on its belly and made the man's labor on the land difficult, all without speaking, by wordless acts of judgment. 
However, the God who's presented to us in the Bible is quite unlike that. He is a God who is by his, by his very nature acts by speaking. The divine word that created in the first place continues to speak in warning humanity against disobedience to God and subsequently in uttering curses when disobedience occurs. And the act of cursing from God is as effective as the act of creating. For God to say the words is to perform the action. And of course, it's not just God creating through his words or judging by his words. As God goes about saving, he's speaking. After he judges the world with a flood, he comes to Noah and he makes a covenant. And that covenant does something. It guarantees, actually, that we're going to be around until salvation happens. And then just a couple chapters later, man is uh, gathered together to shake their fist at God again. God sets his saving plan in motion. And what's the first thing we find him doing? Genesis 12, 1, speaking. Now the Lord said to Abraham, God made a promise and that promise accomplishes something. It's part of why Jesus came into the world. I don't know if this is uh, totally why, but I think it's part of the explanation why in the prophets you'll read a very strange phrase. So Ezekiel chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. If you can find Ezekiel, by the end of this class, you'll be able to find Ezekiel. Ezekiel 1, 2 and 3. But this is just something you find in many different prophets. So if you get fortunate and find a prophet, you'll find this uh, find this phrase in, in that book, I'm sure. But Ezekiel 1, 2 and 3. To do that, you'll need to be online. <laughs> no, I don't think so. I think I can do it this way. Um, on the fifth day of the month, it was the fifth year of the exile of King Jehoiachin, the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel the priest. And we're so used to that that we probably don't even notice it. But the word of the Lord came. That's not the way you would normally describe a message. A message came. It's speaking of the, the message as doing something, as coming to Ezekiel. And it that's a unique way of speaking, but it makes sense if you see this connection between God's word and action. God's word is not static, lifeless. It does something. Psalm 29. This is a really beautiful psalm, but if you turn to Psalm 29, I just want you to hear the way it describes God's voice. Psalm 29. This is a really beautiful psalm, but if you turn to Psalm 29, I just want you to hear the way it describes God's voice. So this whole class is motivation, but I, 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 Psalm 29, it's describing God's voice, and it's picturing God's voice almost like a storm, actually. It says, uh, verse 3, the voice of the Lord is over the waters, the God of glory thunders, the Lord over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of mas majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. And who's breaking the cedars? God, these massive trees. God's breaking these trees. But how does he do it? Through his voice, through his word. Psalm 33, verse 6, just a couple chapters later. This is talking about creation again. But it says, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. And by the breath of his mouth, all their host." Psalm 147, verse 18, explains that this is not just something that happened in the past either. God did not only create through his word, he sustains the world through his word. And in very specific ways, listen to this verse, Psalm 147, verse 18, 
or 17 and 18. He hurls down his crystals of ice like crumbs. Who can stand before his cold? He sends out his word and melts them. He makes his wind blow and the waters flow. And, I, and that phrase, he melts the snow. How? How does God melt the snow? By his word. It's interesting, isn't it? It's, it's something is going on with his word. It's acting. The word has power to act in tangible ways. It's like melting snow. Isaiah chapter 55, verses 10 and 11. We read these verses on, on Sunday, but listen to them again. Isaiah 55, 10 and 11. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. And that's a great picture. God sends out his word to accomplish a purpose, almost like his servant. And it goes out there and his word succeeds in doing what he sent it to do. So there's a connection between God and his word. How does God act in this world? One big primary way that God acts in this world is through his word. That's why we count on his word being powerful because he is acting through his word. And that's part of how we're even saved, right? If you go to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Verse six, Paul describes how salvation works. Second Corinthians chapter four, verse six. We might have a lot of people who want to be preachers after this class, because this is, I mean, after this night, because this is awesome when you understand what God's word can do. Second Corinthians chapter four, verse six. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And so he starts out by talking about creation and he's like, God spoke, go back to the beginning of the world, God spoke, light, all these things. And how did it happen? It was his word that made it happen. He made the light shine out of darkness by speaking. Okay, and you're like, why does he bring up creation? Because that's what happens when you're saved. That's what happens when you're saved. God does that kind of creation miracle. He shines in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. God spoke out of light. God spoke and light shined out of darkness at creation. And God speaks through his word and people's hearts light up and they can see the glory of God in the face of Christ. We get excited about God's word because we know it can do things like that. It has power. And one reason we're confident that God's word does things is because there's a very, very close connection in the Bible between God and his word. Now, this is where it gets really, really fun and cool because this is pretty obvious, but I think, again, it's something we fail to appreciate just in general, how tightly a person's words are connected to that person. So my mom and dad are living in South Africa. I was thinking this this week, and, and I don't see them, but I do talk to them. I talk to them on a little piece of, I don't need plastic. What is it made out of? A, a cell phone. And, and so how do I have a relationship with them now? 
it's completely through words. I have a relationship with my mom. I'm not in her presence. It's just words going back and forth. If Marta's away and I receive a letter that she wrote, I say that letter is from Marta. And though she's not in my presence, those words are Marta's. And as I read those words, it's like Marta is talking to me. If I found out later that those words were written by a chatbot, it would not mean anything to me. Those words mean something to me because they come from Marta, and in some almost mysterious way, those words are connected to Marta. If I found out later it was from somebody else, it would be terrible, right? I, that, that, the words themselves wouldn't change, but somehow those words that Marta writes are connected to Marta. And that's why they mean so much to me. It's like she's talking to me through that letter. And God's words are significant because of how tightly connected they are back to God. When somebody disobeys God's word in the Bible, who are they disobeying? What are they disobeying? God. They're disobeying God. Listen to the way Paul puts it in Galatians chapter 1, verse 8. Galatians 1, 8. Paul says, uh, he's, he's talking to the Galatians, this church that he planted. They're starting to, um, it's actually Galatians 1.6. They're starting to, uh, to leave the gospel, and he just can't believe this. He doesn't even have time to say thank you like he always does. He's just getting right into it. And he's like, verse 6, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ. So what, how does he describe what they're doing? They are deserting God who called them. How are they doing that? They are turning to a different gospel. So they're turning to a different gospel, a different message, but what is that? It's it's deserting him who called you. It's deserting God. Your response to God's word reveals your response to God. God and his word are connected. They depart from the gospel. They depart from God. In the Old Testament, God enters into a relationship with Israel, and how are they to live out that relationship? in submission to his word. He says, he gives them all these laws and he's like, if you obey these laws, you can read this Exodus 19. He's like, if you obey these laws, then this is what's gonna happen. You're gonna be blessed. We're gonna be living in a great relationship. If you disobey God's word, if you ignore these laws, you're gonna break this relationship. That's actually what happened in the Garden of Eden, right? They uh, disobeyed God's word and they broke their relationship with God. God and his word are connected. How does God make himself known? How does God reveal himself? There's actually, if you go to Exodus, there's a really interesting passage in Exodus chapter 33, verse 19. Listen to this. Um, Moses is asking God to show him his glory. And listen to what God says to Moses, Exodus 33, uh, verse 19. And he said, I will make my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. So Moses is like, I want to see your glory. And God says, okay, I'm going to preach me to you. I'm going to talk to you about who I am. And so somehow God's revealing of himself to Moses is connected to words, to God preaching his character to Moses. And so we, I'm, I'm just going over this because we minimize words in our mind, I think. 
And we're like, I want a relationship with God. I want to experience the presence of God. And someone is like, well, then read the Bible. And we're like, well, I want more than that. I want more than that. And the answer to that is, yeah, I understand that. Of course, we're not in the Garden of Eden. That, that's a problem. We want to be in heaven. But listen, at the same time, no, 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 no. Even if with my parents, if I said, I want a relationship with my parents, I want a relationship my, with my marriage, you, you, you would say, I understand wanting them to live near you. But if I said to you, no, speaking to them on the phone is not a relationship. It's nothing. You would say, now you've gone too far because that's actually at the heart of a relationship. Even if I went to be with my, my parents in South Africa and we didn't talk, it would be worse, right? We just like stand there and look at each other. That's not really the heart of a relationship. The heart of a relationship is words. They speak to you, you speak back. In fact, imagine if God flipped it as we complain. If we had his full, we fully had his presence now, but no words, Words are at the heart of a, of a relationship. When we have God's words for us in the Bible, that's the point. And he's alive and even mysteriously present with us. We might not be able to experience his full glory the way we will in the future, but he is present with us, dwelling in us. And so as we read God's words, we are interacting with God. Do you get how big this is? Like, wow, it's awesome. And our response to those words is connected to our response to, to God. And we have to make sure that we see that connection. We know that's true in our relationship with one another. Like it's so obvious in your family, you tell your son to do something, they don't do it. You don't say, well, I guess they weren't listening to my words. You say, they're not listening to me. They're disrespecting me. And if your son says, no, all I did was disrespect your words. You would not say, oh, that makes sense. You'd say, no, you're disrespecting me. <laughs> or if they trust your promise, they're trusting you. We read God's words. Our response to those words is a response to God. When I love the word of God, I love God. When I believe the word of God, I believe God. When I preach the word of God, I preach God. When I receive the word of God, I receive God. And spiritually, when I know the word of God, I know God. The tricky part I guess, and maybe what makes it easier to take the Bible for granted is that when we talk about someone speaking to us, we normally are thinking about them standing right there in front of us and opening their mouth. And that's obviously not what's happening with us and God when we're having devotions. But if we step back and think about it a little more, it's obvious that's not the only way we communicate with one another. There are different ways we can speak to one another that are valid and, and genuine ways of communicating. And even in the Bible, there are different ways God speaks. And one of the most common ways we find him speaking in the Bible is through his appointed prophets in words they utter in ordinary human language. And this is so cool. So there's, there's something amazing that happens in the Bible. A person can speak to someone, and yet somehow those words they're speaking are from God. They're God's words. One of the first illustrations we get of this is in Exodus, Exodus 4. Almost everything's in Exodus when it comes to understanding salvation, but Exodus chapter 4. And you remember this story maybe because um, God is going to save his people, and he comes to Moses, and Moses is like, no, please, not me, anybody else. And he's arguing with God, and he doesn't want to go. 
And so finally he tells God, the reason I don't want to go is because I'm not good at speaking. And now this is, I think, one of the first passages in the Bible where it talks about God being angry. And, and so listen to what God says. God is angry, verse 14. And uh, he says, is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite, Exodus 4, 14? I know that he could speak well. Behold, he's coming out to meet you. And when he sees you, he'll be glad in his heart. And now here's the important part. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth. And I will be with your mouth and with his mouth and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people and he shall be your mouth and you shall be as God to him. And so that's a picture of prophecy. Aaron is there speaking and he's good at words somehow, but he's there speaking. But who's speaking really? Moses. Moses. (laughs) Moses put the words in Aaron's mouth. And where did Moses get the words from? God. So God's the one speaking. And that's how prophecy works in the Bible. You've got this human standing there speaking, Aaron. And if you know Aaron in the Bible, he was definitely like a wimpy guy. Uh, Definitely. So one of the funniest parts of Exodus is Moses is like, give me somebody to help me that's really strong. And God's like, okay, Aaron. And Aaron is like the biggest wuss. And whenever somebody, you remember when... uh, Israel came to him and they're like, hey, can you make us an idol? He's like, okay, okay, okay. He's just this guy who's always giving in. And yet this is how prophecy works. Aaron is nothing significant, but God is speaking through Aaron. Jeremiah 1, Jeremiah actually makes a similar argument as Moses when God calls him as a prophet. Uh, this, This is another reason why you really need to know your Bible and why we're going to spend a lot of time in the Pentateuch because so much of the Bible is uh, repeat with little significant differences. <laughs> and so if you don't know the beginning, you don't really know uh, the end. And Jeremiah here is basically saying something very similar as to what Moses said. Uh, he's like, Lord, verse 6, Jeremiah 1, 6, Lord, I don't know how to speak for I'm only a youth. But the Lord's like, don't say to me, I'm only a youth. For to all to whom I send you, you shall go, and whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. Then the Lord put out his hand and touched my mouth. And the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. See, I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build up and to plant. So Jeremiah is going to speak, but the words he's speaking are God's words, And because they are God's words, they're going to accomplish something. They're going to literally destroy nations and overthrow nations and then rebuild and replant Israel. And of course, that's not just when Jeremiah was saying words either. It also includes when he was writing those words down. So Jeremiah chapter 36, verses 2 and 3. God says to Jeremiah, He says, take a scroll and write on it all the words that I have spoken to you against Israel and Judah and all the nations from the day I spoke to you, from the day of Judah until today. It may be that the house of Judah will hear all the disaster that I intend to do for them so that everyone may turn from his evil way and that I may forgive their iniquity and their sin. And actually then Jeremiah has his servant Baruch write them down. So here it is. It's God telling Jeremiah, Jeremiah telling Baruch, Baruch writing it on a scroll It's going to these people. They're going to read the scroll. And whose words are they going to hear ultimately? 
verse five and six. And Jeremiah ordered Baruch saying, I am banned from going to the house of the Lord, so you are to go. And on a day of fasting and the hearing of all the people in the Lord's house, you shall read the words of the Lord from the scroll that you've written at my dictation. So Jeremiah is dictating these words to Baruch. And somehow when Baruch reads them at the temple, he says, these are the words of God. They're hearing from God, even though they're listening to Baruch, who got it from Jeremiah. Look how this works out in the, the New Testament. God sends his son Jesus into the world. And what does Jesus do? Well, John chapter 14, verse 9. Philip's like, uh, who are you, basically? You know this story well. He's like, who are you? And, and John 14, 9, Jesus says, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? So Jesus saying, I came into the world. You look at me. What's going on is I'm revealing God to you, God the Father to you. Now, how did he do that? One way he did it was through his actions. John 14, 10, he says, um, do you not believe that I'm in the Father? The Father is in me. The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his work. So look at what I do. Believe me that I'm in the Father and the Father's in me or else believe on account of the works themselves. So God reveals the Father through his works, but he also reveals the Father through his words, through what he says. John 8, 28. So Jesus said to them, when you've lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak as the Father taught me. So the picture is that God the Father taught Jesus what to say. And when Jesus came into the world, he said it. So you can almost think eternity past, God the Father giving Jesus the words to say. And Jesus on a is a man on a mission, the God-man on a mission, coming into this world to reveal who God is through his actions, but also to reveal God, who God is through the words, by saying the very words that God told him to say. John 17, 8, for I have given them the words that you gave me. <laughs> Picture somehow God the Father giving Jesus, God the Son, these words. I have given them the words that you gave me and they've received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you and they believe that you sent me. Jesus's words are God's words. And that's why he says in John chapter six, verse 63, the words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. Jesus's words are like full of spirit full of the spirit and, and, and life. And then what happens is Jesus gives his disciples the mission to take those words out to the world. The words the father gave to God the son have been given by the son in ordinary human language to his disciples. Those words are to be passed on to others through the words of his disciples Therefore, everyone who never met the word incarnate directly, but hears the word of Christ from the disciples, nevertheless encounters the words of the Father and of Christ. Matthew 10, 14 and 15 is, a, is an example. Jesus has, he sends the disciples out 
with a message, and he so identifies himself with the disciples' message that he says, um, if anyone will not receive you or listen to your word, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. So Jesus sends these disciples out to preach his message. They reject that message. Jesus says they deserve judgment. Why? John, uh, or Matthew 10, 40, whoever receives you receives me. Whoever receives me receives him who sent me. To reject their message is to reject Jesus, and that's God. And then in John chapter 16, Jesus explains how this works. The process, John chapter 16, verses 12 through 15. And he's talking to the disciples here. And he says, I have many things to say to you, but you can't bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. And that's what we have in the New Testament. That's what we have in the New Testament. The, the big New Testament text, which explains that, is 2 Peter chapter 1, verses uh, 16 through 21. And uh, Peter is saying, you need to be holy, and you need to be holy because Jesus is going to return. And this is how you can be confident that Jesus is going to return. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 16. We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We saw this. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven for we were with him on the holy mountain and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention to a, as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. And so he's saying, we saw this, we know you didn't, but you actually have something more sure. You have the word of God. Why? Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy comes from someone's own interpretation for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so basically what that means is that the Bible's a miracle. Uh, the Bible's a miracle. As B.B. Warfield explains, the whole of scripture is the product of divine activity which enters it, not by superseding the activity of the human authors, but by working with them. Levi asked me last night, he uh, came to me, and I don't know where he got this question, but he said, Dad, you know, like, when Paul wrote, was it like God just told him what to say, and he just said what God said, or was it Paul actually writing? And I was like, son, you got it. That's that Paul was actually writing what Paul wanted to write. And yet somehow Paul was writing exactly what God wanted him to say. So they were God's words and Paul's words at the same exact time. Which should help us understand the privilege we have as we're reading God's word. It's human words, <laughs> but when we encounter these human words in the Bible, Somehow we are in direct contact with God's word. 
which means that we are in a relationship with, with God himself. What's going on with, in Scripture is that God the Father wants to have a relationship with you. And for that to happen, he has to act, and he has to reveal himself and the meaning of what he's doing, and the Scriptures are the means in which he's, he's done that. And I guess I'm just trying to help you see how personal this is. It's so personal. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul puts it like this in 2 Corinthians 5, and we were talking about this, this at our devotions the other night. But 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul's talking about this message that he preached, and he preached to the Corinthians. And listen to what he says here. This is just, oh, man, this is so cool. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20. He says, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. So Paul's like, I'm a representative of Christ. We are representatives of Christ. But listen to this. God making his appeal through us. So catch catch this, catch this. Here is Paul preaching the message of the gospel, the message of scripture. And yet who is really talking to those people? God. It's God pleading with people through Paul. That's what's happening when we understand the meaning of Scripture. It is God pleading with us. It's God speaking to us. And again, again, this is real. That's part of why we take Scripture so seriously. Interacting with God's words in Scripture, when you understand them accurately, is interacting with God in some very real way. This is not just sort of information on a page that's just lying there dead. There's a person behind these words that's alive, and that person is God. And when he speaks, he's not just taking information and putting it into your brain. He's relating to you. This is relational. And again, sometimes because we're so used to it, we forget what's happening uh, in communication between people who are alive. And this is maybe a little deep. But how communication works in general, communication is not between is not just transferring, it's not like just transferring pieces of data from one computer to another when two humans, when humans communicate. There's something a little different when you and I talk than when I type in a question in Google. When I talk to you, our communication involves a response, it involves a relationship. And so when you respond to my words, there's a sense in which you're responding to me. Like if I say to you, what time is it? Time is it? And you, um, if I say to you, what time is it? And you look at your watch, uh, and I look at my watch and tell you a time, and then you go and ask another person the time immediately afterward. What do I say? I'll say, hey, don't you trust me? Your response to my words is a response to me. There's like a connection. So you write down something for your kids, a command. You're going to be away. You write down a command. And they read it, and they don't do it. And you come back home, what do you say? You say, why didn't you obey me? And they can't say, I didn't disobey you. I disobeyed that letter. You weren't here. All I had was this letter. You say, no, somehow me and that letter are connected. Your response to that letter is your response to me. And you see that even with Jesus. Jesus ties our relationship with him so closely to our relationship with his word. There are times in scripture where Jesus will say, abide in me. John 15, four and five, you can look this up at sometimes. He says, abide in me. And you know what the next thing he says is? Abide in my words. And so somehow 
Abiding in Jesus is connected to having his word abide in you. Ephesians 5.18 says, be filled with the spirit. And then it talks about um, addressing one another, psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Colossians chapter three, parallel passage. It says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And so being filled with the spirit is somehow tied to knowing and meditating and being controlled by God's word which I guess I'm just saying makes studying the scripture so important and such a privilege because this is not just a textbook. It's not just a textbook. It's not just pieces of data. God is acting through his word. He's acting through his word. Listen to how Thomas Brooks puts it. Ah, the word of the Lord is a light to guide you, a counselor to counsel you, a comforter to comfort you, a staff to support you, a sword to defend you, a physician to cure you, The word is a mind to enrich you, a robe to clothe you, a crown to crown you, bread to strengthen you, wine to cheer you, a honeycomb to feast you, music to delight you, a paradise to entertain you. Oh, therefore, before all and above all, search the scripture, study the scripture, meditate on the scripture, delight in the scripture, treasure up the scripture. There's no wisdom like scripture wisdom, no knowledge like scripture knowledge, no experience like scripture experience, no comforts like scripture comforts, no delights like scripture delights, no conviction like scripture convictions, no conversion like scripture conversion. I exhort you to a speedy, serious, diligent, and constant study of the scripture. Ah, you do not know how soon your blind eyes may be enlightened, your hard hearts may be softened, your proud spirits may be humbled, your sinful natures may be changed, your defiled consciences may be purged, your distempered affections may be regulated, and your poor souls may be saved by searching into the scriptures, by reading the scriptures, and by pondering the scriptures. That's part of why I love to be a preacher, because I never know what's going to happen on Sunday, you know? God's word is powerful, It has power to accomplish what he wants it to accomplish. And so when we preach and teach God's word, we accurately explain the meaning of scripture. You know what's happening? It's it's mysterious, but God is speaking to you and his word can accomplish things in you that there's no way that I could ever accomplish or any human being could ever accomplish because this is God's word. And we can say that scripture has that kind of power not just because some old Puritan said it, because, but because that's what the scripture says about the scripture. Look at Psalm 19, you know this one, Psalm 19, verses 7 through 11, talking about the revelation of God, uh, the instruction of God. It's really what the word here means, the law of the Lord, the instruction of the Lord. Listen to this, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. So God's word has the ability. Here's somebody who's just um, tired and no strength, and God's word has the power to give them strength. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Here's somebody who doesn't know much, but God's word can give them the ability to become these people who understand how life works. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. God's word can actually put joy in a sad heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. It can show you how to go. The fear of the Lord is clean. It endures forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even more than fine gold, fine gold, much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there's great reward. And again, God's not just acting through his word. He's speaking, he's speaking, he's speaking through his word. I always think if I said to you, like, God's going to show up 
at the train station tomorrow and speak at 9 a.m. Who's going to get there at like 9.30? We're going to be there at 9 a.m. God is speaking. And that's what's going on in the word of God. That's really what's going on. Galatians chapter 3, verse 1, Paul's talking about when he was preaching to the uh, Galatians. And he, he, again, he's just so shocked that they're drifting, which is a warning for sure. And he says, this is how he describes how, why he's so shocked. He says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Now, were they there in Jerusalem when Jesus was crucified? No, the, most of these, these Galatians were not there. They were not there. Most of these guys were pagans in Galatia. But yet he says, you, you saw Christ crucified. Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. What's he talking about? He's talking about him preaching the gospel. Somehow as he was preaching the gospel, it was like God enabled them to see spiritually Christ being crucified. Listen to how Paul puts it in 2 Timothy chapter 3. Verses 14 through 17. Timothy is in a really difficult spot. He's a timid guy. Paul's like, hey, I, Timothy, you know what? You're probably going to get persecuted and it's going to be super hard, but don't give up. <laughs> Why? Why? What, how, what, what encouragement does he, he give him? He, says, he gives him, he says, go back to what you have in, in the scripture. Verse 16. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. That's a great picture, breathed out. Sometimes we say the Bible's inspired, but we really should say the Bible's expired. It like it, it's comes out of God's mouth. And you know the only other thing in the, in the Bible that it talks about God breathing into, the breath of God like that? It's the dust that made man. God would... The dust was just ordinary dust, but God breathed into it and gave it life. And these words look like just ordinary words, but God has breathed into this book and it has life. It has life. It's the very, very word of God. And not just to people a long time ago. What does Paul say that the word of God, the scriptures do? It's profitable, he says, for for not just those people back then, it's profitable for teaching us, for correcting us, for rebuking us, that we may be complete and adequate, equipped for every good work. And yet, you know, in spite of how powerful God's word is, many people aren't profiting from it. Um, and there's different reasons for that. Actually, Jesus warns about, Jesus warns about that in the parable of the soils, um, the that his work can go out and there are people who sit there, sit there, sit there, and they don't benefit from it. And one reason people don't benefit from it is because they're not converted. They don't have the spirit of God. Another reason people don't, are, are, he, Jesus warns that they don't benefit from it is because their hearts and minds are filled up with the worries and cares of life. And so it's like their heart gets so rock solid that the word just kind of bounces off of it. But another reason people don't benefit from the word of God is because they don't understand it. These words themselves aren't magic. I remember uh, one time walking on a mountain in, um, hiking on a mountain in uh, Pretoria, coming and I could just hear this noise. And I came around the corner and there's this whole group of people just standing there saying, the blood of Jesus, the blood of Jesus, the blood of Jesus, just yelling, yelling, Jesus, Jesus, the blood of Jesus, the blood of Jesus. And it was sad because they were thinking that 
the words themselves had some sort of magical power. And that's not, when we talk about the Bible having power, that's not what we mean. It's the meaning that communicates God's message to us that has power. As someone has said, the meaning of the scripture is the scripture. So God's word is not me reading a passage and making it say, if I read a passage and then I don't accurately interpret it, guess what? That is not God's word to you and it has no authority. The meaning of the scripture is the scripture. It's only as we understand the scripture that we're actually really hearing what God wants to say to us, which is part of why we're having this class. We need to understand the meaning of scripture if we're going to hear from God and really understand anything in this world and in our lives. In the Bible, God has stooped down to reveal himself and who he is and what he's done in the absolute best way possible for us in the condition that we're in right now. And so we need to do whatever we can to make sure we're accurately hearing what he has to say to us, which is one reason I'm excited about spending these Wednesday evenings trying to go deep into the scriptures uh, with you. This evening was just a motivation, but I hope you are motivated. We have uh, a massive privilege to have the inspired, inerrant, authoritative word of God. And we do not want to be like Israel who had God living in their midst, and they're like, you know what? I wish we could be like all the other nations. And I know that's the thing. We always look at Prince Harry, and we're like, how could Prince Harry be so, take things for granted? But you and I are Prince Harry, man. You and I, we we take things for granted. That's us. That's what we do. And we look at Israel like, how could they take that for granted? They must be a special kind of bad. They're not a special kind of bad. This is what we do, and proof of that is how easy it is for us to take for granted the Word of God. This is what the Word of God, this is what the Word of the Scripture is. It's the Word of God, and uh, we want to pray that God helps us realize what a privilege we have and uh, really be transformed by it. So this is just the beginning. Next week, we'll uh, maybe set up some tables, but next week, uh, we'll start to look a little more carefully at an introduction to the Old Testament. So this was like an introduction to the Bible, why we're going to study the Bible. The main thing I said to you today is that the Bible is the inspired word of God. We talked about what that means. And then next week, we'll look at um, why studying the Old Testament specifically, because there's a lot of the Old Testament that seems kind of strange. And we're going to see that it's actually awesome. That's a preview. But any thoughts or questions? I'm kind of, I gave, I got, I got finished a minute early. How's that? Got to come back because, well, now I'm not a minute early anymore. It's eight now. Cool. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yes, I can do that. I will do that. I have lots of them. Yeah. Um, but I'm not going to do it in the sense of like people have to. Yeah. Yeah, recommended resources. Um, I have one uh, recommended resource for this particular class, but I wonder how, how I could get that out to you. It's actually a short little video by John Piper on um, uh, First Timothy, on this passage in, in Timothy. Um, but, okay, maybe I'll bring it next week. Thanks, guys.
Cool. If you want homework, tell me. If you want quizzes, tell me. I'm so happy to do that. And then if you want, um, yeah, if you want, let's see, what else can I give you? <laughs> Exams. Yeah, I can do all that. Um, but cool.